When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 411, Tears of the Prophets. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. And Peldor Joy to one and all. You know what we do here, celebrating and reflecting on a single episode of Star Trek, each one in turn, as we examine it for morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, we are turning our attention to Tears of the Prophets and offering a handkerchief if necessary. I'll be back right away with trivia of the prophets as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I love that you started off with uh, the, the celebration greeting. So we're celebrating trivia now with John Champion. Hey, just nothing but a celebration ahead. What could possibly get in the way of the fun that we're having on this auspicious occasion? So, Tears of the Prophets was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler, so naturally those two would get the lion's share of credit for shaping this story and script as we wrap up Season 6. But everybody on the staff realized that they had a lot of housekeeping to do in terms of tying up some story and production elements and also setting up what would come in Season 7. There were many, many ideas that were considered and rejected. People like Ron Moore and Renee Echeverria had a hand in those too. The big questions were to how to integrate Ducat back into the action and then what to do with one cast member who's leaving the show. This episode was directed by Alan Croker. We just covered one of Alan's recent outings as director when we talked about Time's Orphan. Here he is doing his thing, helping to wrap up a season. And we have some very ambitious CG effects in the uh, big battle scenes. We get to see some familiar ship configurations like the Vorchok-class Klingon warship, not exactly having a good day. Then there are Federation stalwarts like Galaxy and Excelsior-class ships, the USS Hood, the Venture, and the Valley Forge, among many, many more. Uh, There's even a mistake or two 
On at least one of the shots of the Defiant, she still has the registry numbers of the late, not-so-great Valiant. Let's talk about our guest stars. Here we have what DS9 does extremely well, which is getting the whole band back together for an epic story. Mark Alimo, Casey Biggs, Jeffrey Combs, Andy Robinson, Aaron Eisenberg, J.G. Hertzler, Jimmy Darren, all right where they should be. We even get Barry Jenner back as Admiral Ross. The last time we saw him was in the fifth episode of this season, Favor the Bold. But we do have one new face among the familiar. David Burney plays the Romulan Latant. David got his start on TV in the 1960s and was a staple there for a number of years, everything from Hawaii Five-0 to Fantasy Island to St. Elsewhere, and he is also likely known for being married to actress Meredith Baxter for a number of years. While this is his only Trek appearance, it's fun to point out that he was the voice of Anakin Skywalker in the Return of the Jedi radio dramas. This episode is among the last of David's on-screen credits since the late 90s. In 2017, it was revealed that he has been battling Alzheimer's disease. Oh, and he does have a few appearances on The Love Boat. You can catch our discussion about his performance as Paolo Damazzi in Lido Deck episode 200, available through Facebook and Twitter at Lido Deck Pod. What's all this talk about a handkerchief? Is this going to be wiping tears of the prophets, or snot of the prophets? Prologue. An upbeat and positive energy buzzes around the promenade on Deep Space Nine as the Bajorans celebrate their ritual gratitude festival. Major Kira is grateful to Captain Sisko for allowing the festival to take place during the war, but Sisko reminds her that they have much to be thankful for, and to remember that as he leaves for another ceremony. Odo, however, is not so fortunate with Kira as he dutifully arrested Vedic Solis for breaking station regulations by fundraising for Bajoran flood victims, and to Odo, the law is the law. Kira leaves in haste, and to Odo, it seems that they have reached an impasse in their relationship. In the wardroom, Admiral Ross decorates Captain Sisko in front of his fellow Starfleet officers and friends with the Christopher Pike Medal of Valor for his leadership, sacrifice, and bravery in retaking Deep Space Nine. However, as soon as the ceremony subsides, Admiral Ross confines in Benjamin that Starfleet has decided to take the offensive against the Dominion and that Sisko is to plan the invasion of Cardassia itself. Act 1. In Quark's, Dr. Bashir and Quark wait for Worf and Jedzia to leave the holosuite. When they finally emerge, Jedzia accidentally and excitedly blurts out that she and Worf spent the entire time, well, not practicing combat scenarios, but rather discussing parenthood, something that Worf wanted to keep private. Oops. And it seems that both Julian and Quark reacted to this news rather obtusely, as both of them were trying to hide their collective disappointment as they have both come to the realization that Dax and Worf's marriage is stronger than it has ever been. In Sisko's office, he, General Martok, and Admiral Ross are deep in strategy, discussing that the key to invading Cardassian space is through the poorly defended Chantaka system, and the Romulan fleet is key to breaking through what Jem'Hadar forces patrol that sector. Although Martok despises the arrogance and untrustworthiness of the Romulans, he guarantees that in a year's time, they will all be drinking blood wine in the halls of Cardassian Central Command. Meanwhile, on Cardassia, 
Wayun and Damar are also deep in strategic planning of their own, and are also aware of the thinly defended Chintaka system. But Damar informs Wayun that they have a satellite defense system capable of repelling any invasion force. Well, once it becomes operational. Their meeting is interrupted by the appearance of Dukat, who, as he has always want to do, assures both Wayun and Damar that he is no longer bent on revenge for the death of Zial. In fact, he declares that his sole purpose now is to defeat Sisko and his Bajoran prophets once and for all. All Dukat asks for is access to several Bajoran artifacts that were appropriated during the occupation. Act 2. Back in the wardroom on Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko has his hands full between trying to convince Senator Latant of the Romulan forces to lend their support in the Cardassian invasion, and trying to bring General Martok to heel as the general continues to bait and antagonize his would-be allies in the operation to invade Cardassian space. Senator Latant is unimpressed with both Sisko's tactical plans and Martok's Klingon bravado, but Captain Sisko insists that the only way that they will be able to turn the tide of battle against the Dominion is to focus on a common goal, and one that will benefit all governments involved, and that goal is to drive the Dominion from the Alpha Quadrant, to which all parties can agree. Meanwhile, in Vic Fontaine's lounge, well, in his holosuite program, Quark and Dr. Bashir are being serenaded by Vic himself, with their request of, here's to the losers. And that little detail isn't lost on Vic. After his performance, Vic can plainly see, even if Julian and Quark can't, that their unrequited love for Jadzia is just something that they will have to just move past, you know, move on to greener pastures, because space is big. And there are a lot of other fillies out there, with or without spots, capiche? And it seems like quiet dinnertime contemplation is also the mood in the Cisco's quarters, as Jake tries to convince his dad to let him have a bridge-side seat to the invasion of Cardassia Prime as a war correspondent. Knowing that Jake won't take no for an answer, he begrudgingly approves and tells Jake to be packed and ready. Jake leaves to do just that as Sisko is whisked away into a vision state as the prophets appear before him and warn him not to leave Bajor. Act 3. In the wardroom, Sisko, Ross, and Martok refocus their strategy after receiving intelligence that the Chintaka system has now been fortified with orbital defense platforms, which have not yet gone online. The time to strike is now, before those platforms can stop Sisko's fleet from exploiting their best shot at taking Cardassia. The good news is that Senator Latant has agreed to attach his fleet to the Coalition's armada. The Romulans have cast their lot in with Sisko and Martok and will join the fight, much to Martok's surprise. However, in a private moment, Sisko admits to Ross that the prophets appeared before him and warned him not to leave Bajor. But Admiral Ross gives Sisko an ultimatum to choose to either be the emissary or a Starfleet captain because he can no longer effectively be both. And with that, Sisko assures Ross that he will lead the Defiant into battle. Meanwhile on Cardassia, Wayun and Damar make preparations of their own and are deeply concerned that the orbital defense systems aren't yet online. And to make matters worse, Dukat barges in, holding a strange box covered with intricate carvings. Dukat confesses that his mistake with the Bajorans in the past was dealing with the people and not their gods, the prophets, the aliens who reside in the wormhole. Reciting an incantation, Dukat pulls a strange carved figure from the box and breaks it in half. Suddenly, a fiery red energy plume emerges from within, pours into Dukat's body, and launches him violently across the room. Damar and Wayun rush over to him as Dukat looks up, 
now with bright blood red eyes and a strange echo in his voice and tells them your concern is touching but unnecessary back on deep space nine Kier visits odo in his office letting him know that she's leaving with a task force soon however Odo is somewhat sheepish with Kira, hoping that they are still in a relationship, and Kira reassures him that it was just an argument, not the first they will have, not the last. Odo is still puzzled, tries to understand, and wishes to spend a special evening with her before she leaves. As the rest of the crew prepares for departure, Dax says goodbye to Worf at the airlock and is excited for him to return so they can get to work on their new family. Worf, ever the romantic, replies, I don't consider that work. Outside the station, the fleet is assembled in formation and is ready to make haste to Cardassia. Act 4. When the Federation fleet arrives in the Chintaka system, they are relieved that the orbital weapons platforms are still down as they press the advantage and destroy as many as they possibly can. Unfortunately, their luck runs out as wave after wave of Jem'Hadar fighters relentlessly attack Martok's attack wing and delay the larger Federation fleet from engaging, allowing the satellites to finally come online. With the combined firepower of the Jem'Hadar support fighters and the orbital platforms, the Federation fleet suffers heavy casualties, until Garrick and Chief O'Brien discover that the platforms are being powered by a generator on a nearby yet heavily shielded moon. Meanwhile on Deep Space Nine, Julian and Dax walk the upper promenade in high spirits, as the good doctor informs Dax that thanks to special treatments, she may be able to have children with Worf. Thankful beyond measure, she hugs Julian and makes her way to the Bajoran Temple to offer her prayers, out of respect for the kindness that Kira gave her earlier. Kneeling before the orb of contemplation, Dax is suddenly disturbed as the temple's candles flicker out. Dukat materializes before Dax, and before she can draw her phaser, he strikes with a fiery blazing energy which lifts Dax off her feet. Dropping her to the floor, Dukat opens up the orb chamber and screams in agony as the same fiery red energy pours out of his body and into the orb of contemplation, making it grow cold and turn black, and causing the wormhole to collapse in a strange pulse of energy. As Dukat returns to his senses, he confesses to a very still and lifeless Dax that he never meant her any harm as he activates his transporter device and beams out. On the Defiant, Captain Sisko feels strange, weak, and knows that something is wrong with the prophets. Jake takes him to his quarters as Kira and the chief continue to press the attack. Act 5. Finally locating the power source that is keeping the orbital platforms operational, Kira orders its immediate destruction, but to no avail as they cannot penetrate the moon's shielding. But the chief texts the tech, projects a fake Federation warp signature on the moon's shielding frequency, and tricks the orbital platforms to fire on their own power generator, thinking it's a Federation ship instead. With all of the orbital platforms down, the Federation fleet continues its march towards Cardassia, destroying what platforms remain, just to be sure. General Martok contacts Major Kira and informs her that he will immediately deploy ground troops to begin the occupation process to secure both planets in the system. However, the celebration is short-lived as Kira receives a Priority One message from Dr. Bashir. As Wayun and Damar try to salvage what is left of their forces, Dukat appears on their monitor and assures them that even though the battle didn't go as planned, that he struck a major victory against the Bajorans and especially against Captain Sisko, who without the prophets to guide him, or the Bajoran people, 
He is no longer their emissary. He is now only just another Starfleet captain. As the Defiant docks with Deep Space Nine, Worf rushes with all haste to the infirmary while Sisko is surrounded by a flock of worried Bajorans. A young Bajoran girl catches his attention, who tells him that all of the orbs are dark and the prophets have abandoned them. Sisko tries to reassure all of them that he will do what he can to make things right. Finally making his way to the infirmary, Sisko watches a despondent Julian tell all that he was able to save the Dax symbiont, but it was too late to save Jadzia. Sisko goes to see her and finds Worf and Jadzia sharing one last intimate moment together. Her last words to him were how beautiful their baby would have been. And she breathed her last. Worf howled in grief and then began chanting in ritual Klingon prayer, and Benjamin softly caressed her face. Later, in a private moment with Jadzia, now laid to rest in a traditional Starfleet torpedo casing, adorned with the Federation flag, Sisko reflects on his friendship with Dax, first as Curzon as his mentor, but more importantly as Jadzia, who was, is, his friend. Sisko was lost, doesn't know how to make things right, and needs to find his way again, but not here, not on Deep Space Nine. He needs to leave and figure it all out, no matter how long that takes. As he takes his final leave from his duties, Kira, Odo, Julian, and O'Brien all see him off and grieve with him. And as Benjamin and Jake leave Ops, Kira walks into his office and stares at his desk, fearing the worst. She explains to Odo that Sisko took his baseball with him, meaning that she's not sure if he is coming back. Much later on Earth, in the alleyway outside Joseph Sisko's restaurant, Captain Sisko scrubs clam after clam after clam, not sure of anything anymore, and just focused on the simplicity of the task that is literally in his hands. A simple, uncomplicated task that he's good with doing. For now. The end. So much plot, Norman. <laughs> There's a lot of plot here to wrap up at the end of season six. So uh, good job for knocking through all of that. And uh, I have to say, you know, right off the bat, right in our teaser section here, um, I'm so glad that when Deep Space Nine's writers uh, abandon writing bickering dialogue between Miles and Keiko, they can just move it right over to Kira and Odo. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, yes. The DS9 writers, they love their bickering couples. It's just, I, look, it's honestly not too bad. And they do, they, they each have a point. I get it. Mm -hmm. It's a little strange that in an episode where there's so much happening and we really only have two very short Odo Kira scenes, that's it. We're going to open with some bickering. A little later in the show, we're going to get to them having a, oh, well, this is just a lesson for Odo in like arguing. <laughs> you know, Reconciling. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's yeah. a little strange. We haven't spent a whole lot of time with them as a couple yet. So, uh, True enough. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I like the beginning of this episode because I've always liked how good Avery is with kids. Yeah. Have you noticed right? like when he's around flocks of kids, like they're the Bajoran kids in the temple. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of this really sweet scene in Far Beyond the Stars where he's walking up a sidewalk with a group of kids and they're singing. Mm -hmm. But he just always seems very natural with kids. I, I don't know if that's a strange observation, but that's 
that's what I see with him all the time. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I really, I love that they have the Christopher Pike Medal of Valor. Yeah. That just makes me happy because nowadays, as of recording this podcast, Christopher Pike is a much bigger part of our Star Trek experience, you know, from the J.J. Abrams film in 2009 and those sequels all the way up to Star Trek Discovery. Pike is just a much better known name. But at the time this was made, this was a footnote in Star Trek history. It, it, it was the pilot that many people still had not seen, and it was a character in an episode created from that unseen pilot so it's mm -hmm. just kind of cool to have that level of uh detail and consistency here yeah those are the kind of easter eggs that are nicely dropped in for the people like in the mm -hmm. know so i like that that's a nice little bit of detail i also like that it was a starfleet only ceremony where it's just the officers jake was there because you know obviously it, you know he's you know uh benjamin's yeah. son but it was nice that only the people that really understood what that metal meant really appreciated like why he was able to achieve that. Honor. True. Yeah. Good point. I like that quite mm -hmm. a bit. So I'm going to put this out there. This is a promise I will make. I'll make it on the air okay. and I can't take it back because it's out there. The first person that I see at Star Trek Las Vegas cosplaying Dax or Worf's Batleth training uniform, you get a free drink. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? That is great. Yes. Yeah. Because, I love that outfit. I said before, when they were first starting to court each other, they were wearing those in their Hollow Suite program. It's one of my favorite uniforms in the series, right next, well, martial arts uniforms, right up there with Kirk's red tights. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. We need to have like a group cosplay of that. You got a couple of the nice. bat with training and then Kirk and the red tights. Something else that I love in this episode. Man, I know that I say it every time and, and people get tired of me saying, well, first of all, how much I love Jeffrey Combs and anything. I love this Martok. And I love the idea that when we were introduced to Martok, of course, he was fake Martok. And then we got a Martok who grew back into being this guy. And he's mm -hmm. just so good. Like, even if it was a little on the nose that you have him getting rankled by the Romulan and he's going to, of course, he's going to jump over the table with a knife and he has to be calmed down. Of course. Like, you just kind of yeah. have to have that cliche scene. But he's so good. Love him. Yeah. Well, they were all cliched in that scene. You had the aggressive oh, yeah. Klingons. You kind of like the standoffish, cold, calculating Romulans. And then you had the peacekeeping Federation, mm -hmm. right? In between yes. them. Literally in between yes. them. Yes, yes. I did find it funny, though, when Martok said, in a year's time, we're going to be standing in, you know, Cardassian Central Command. And literally, the jump scene right after was an exterior shot of Cardassia, which was so hilarious. Great. Yes. Right? The timing was great. Yeah. Uh, I do love me a really good animated uh, screen. And I loved when Damar brought that whole orbital platform animation yeah. online. I was like, that's, that's super cool. That was very cool. This fully operational Orbital yes. <laughs> weapon station. I know, right? <laughs> Did you notice that there were two TNG uniformed guards at the very back of the wardroom during that whole kind of coalition meeting? Yes. Yeah. So, and I think it was in Memory Alpha, somebody had mentioned, you know, because they really, uh, their, their uh, contributors really pay attention to these details of props and costumes. And I think they said that this is the last in-order appearance of those costumes. But yeah, so it's I was just surprised to see I them know, because right? all I guess we've, men we've mentioned this before in Deep Space 9 with such a gray and neutral palette. Mm -hmm. 
those colors really pop even in the background you're like hey look there's red in this i know right yeah yeah Yeah. um among favorite lines in this episode i i love in the teaser uh wharf and dax saying you know uh you know what we were discussing uh as a private matter well it was a private matter like that's that was nice but my favorite little tiny exchange what is he, a telepath? No, I'm a hologram. I, it was just, it was mm. delivered so perfectly because that's what Jimmy does. And I loved him singing. Great song. Yes. Probably a little too much use of maybe that time, but I still love seeing yeah. James Darren sing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I also love the details in his lounge. There's ashtrays on the table, mm-hmm. even though nobody smokes. Right. But my big question is if you have the safety protocols on and you smoke holographic cigarettes, mm-hmm. they don't hurt your lungs. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay, so, wow. I mean, that that goes deep. Could the computer simulate the sensation of smoking? Because there, there's the smoke, there's the flavor, there's the warmth, there's all those things without it actually being something dangerous to enter your body because it is just mm-hmm. simulation. Ooh. Right. Because, you know, we, we know that the hologram, uh, that the holodeck can make a real crumpet for, like, Dr. Pulaski to eat. So is there something in between where the sensation is there, but not the danger of a real cigarette. I guess we'll have to find out. I don't know how I feel about how easy it was for Jake to come along on the Defiant. I mean, if I were Ben and it were my 18-year-old son saying, I'm I'm a journalist now, I'm going to come along on this incredibly dangerous mission (laughs) and just hang out on your ship. Now, granted, the Defiant is the safest place to be, but it's still an incredibly dangerous mission. I know. I, I was thinking about that scene, and I guess it's kind of like akin to a parent saying, like, well, yeah, you know what? I'll drive you to the concert instead. I don't want you to mm. go with Timmy and Bobby, and, you know, you guys are going to get Timmy and Bobby and Martok. Like, <laughs> yeah, and Martok. You know, those guys. Yeah. and those They're just going to get into trouble before you even get there, so I'll drive yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Good point. Yeah. yeah. I love Siroc and Avery together. I love yeah. the hug that they give each other in their scene. It It seems so more than just what's on the page. It, there's just a genuine warmth in that embrace that that's the kind of stuff that gets me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So good. And another nice scene, just a, a two-shot. I love Admiral Ross and Cisco because Cisco needs to be called out on the contradiction in his duties to Starfleet and as the emissary. Like, they, they kind of dance right. around it sometimes. It was nice to see you need an Admiral Ross there to hold his feet to the fire. So about time we got yeah. that. I also love the uh, the detail uh, on that the runic box that held the Pa Wraith statue. Very cool. The runes reminded me of the runes that Cisco was studying in that obelisk mm. when he was you know he was kind of like really obsessed with trying to find that lost city. Yeah. So it just leads to that whole you know world building quality yeah. that they're doing with the ancient. That, that's all that. uh, John Eaves's work. As a designer, so you keep that consistency throughout. Just him knocking out these ancient Bajoran artifacts. So cool. Uh, a detail that's worth remembering: mm-hmm. red eyes mean evil. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that should be in some sort of a uh, glossary about DS Nine mm-hmm. and pop culture in general. Red eyes exactly mean evil. Mean yeah. Evil. By the way, what was that really the last thing that the chief thought of right before boarding the Defiant? He says, oh, Jed Zia, would you look in on Keiko and the kids while I'm gone? <laughs> like, it's just his, his passing, his last, actually his next to the last thought, because his last thought is, and Julian too. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least Julian was last. Yeah. Right? You know, like, oh, did I forget anything? Yeah. You know, did I forget? See, the lights mm-hmm. are off. The, you know, the op station, I, I remember to turn on two-factor authentication. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Oh, and Julian. Yeah. Yeah, and Yeah, because he couldn't actually call Keiko on a comm system or whatever. Hey, we have this no. dangerous mission coming up, and hope you and the kids are okay. Hey, could you put Molly and uh, the other one on screen for me so I can say goodbye to them? You know, no, just uh, Jed Zia, check in on them. It's so strange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I love that the the dance dip and the kiss that Worf gives Dax. It could have been an easy, um, like like, same angle kiss. But I, I liked the flair of yeah. it because it was just a wonderful gesture, a nice romantic uh, and iconic kiss because that's like the famous Time Life magazine cover when we won World War II. Right, right. yeah. When I say we, I mean the United States won World yeah. War II. Yeah, yeah. And the Allied Forces. Yes. Please don't send me emails <laughs> for that. You know, I'm trying to make something nice yeah. out of this situation. No, no, it, it was a nice moment. And, and another nice little detail, little actor moment is that after the kiss, she touches his lips before yeah. he leaves. And then we see that again at the end. And it, it was really, yeah, yeah re- really lovely. And it is a dangerous mission. And I will say that it's a good thing that Klingons really like dying in battle. Otherwise, the Federation were going to owe the Klingon Empire a lot at the end of all of this. But, you know, they yeah. pick the right people to go into battle with. Suicidal Jem'Hadar fighters. That's a surprise? I don't think so. <laughs> right? There's a whole wing of fighters and no support. What are they going to do? They're going to kamikaze oh, yeah. your ships. Oh, of course. So, of course. Like, pull them yes. back. <laughs> so the, I mentioned this before. Um, the torpedo tube and the Starfleet flag. You know, we, we talked about it in, in the sound of her voice. Mm-hmm you know, when they were talking about uh, Captain Cusack. And it just seems that every time you see that particular iconic world-building detail of Star Trek, it just hits you right in the feels. Like, you know what that means. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and and it's something that could have felt overused or contrived since the Wrath of Khan, but no, they've gotten it right every single time, and and they've Mm -hmm. landed the emotion of the moment every single time. You you know, not to make light of what's going on here, but at the very end in our epilogue, uh, Ben Sisko is gone. Does he still keep in touch with the Bajorans while he's helping out at the restaurant in New Orleans? Because how do the Bajorans now feel about that? Uh, like, do they send him an email and they say, hey, hey, Emissary, uh, we have some questions for you about cutting us off from our gods. Uh, when you have time off from your restaurant job, of course, just get in touch with us. We'll, we'll be here. Poor Chester. He wasn't even the last thing that she thought of. Chester only dreams of getting as much attention as Julian. We will get right back to Tears of the Prophets in a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsors. And hey, those sponsors are you. It's all of you, most of you who are hearing this. Hopefully you have taken the time to go explore and join us at patreon.com slash mission log. Not only is that where you get the advanced, unedited, unexpurgated episodes, the behind the scenes look at mission log, both video and audio, but you get our discord, which is fantastic. You get uh, most weeks, morning, Mondays, uh, I'm sorry, wait, morn. Monday morn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
with Norm. And you get our uh, very frequent feedback uh, live chat episodes where we just hang out with you on Discord, video, audio. There's so much happening, and uh, we hope that you come join us because Patreon has really been building up into mm -hmm. a community. And communities are really important, especially in these times. You know, we're starting to finally, you know, uh, shake off the shackles of covid but at the same time, though, you know, we still need a lot of community support, especially when some of us can't make it out to conventions or can't make it out to personal meetings. So if you want to just have a really good experience with Star Trek fans, new and old, join us in Patreon, join us on our Discord and meet people from all over. We have fans from here in the United States. We have fans overseas from Ireland, from Sweden, from Finland, from Norway, from Germany. Uh, I still, I still hope that we hear from somebody from Japan, but I'm sure that, you know, someone will, you know, eventually, you know, say hi there, hopefully soon, but it's yes. a great diverse crowd. We have great diverse topics and we talk about food and drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and Star Trek yeah. and a lot of Star Trek as well but it's a blast a bunch of good people and that is exclusive to you who join our Patreon and shout out to some of our newest Patreon supporters Patrick, Cam, Tim, Alec, Troy thank you so much for joining us over there we look forward to interacting with you and you meeting the rest of the community so if you would like to join that is patreon.com slash mission log we will see you there Hey, everybody, I'm Tawny Newsom. I know, and I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. <laughs> we know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's, it's a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of fun this season. We talk to all kinds of cool people. We talk to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and, and, and subscribe. Norm, I mentioned to uh, nobody's surprise, especially your own, that this is a plot-heavy episode. I feel like there are a lot of, you know, a lot of scenes that that take their moment in the spotlight, and you kind of jump from place to place and topic to, to topic quite a bit. And there's it, it it felt a bit out of place to me, but there is this shoehorned little scene with Vic. I, I was not expecting to see Vic in this episode. And I love Vic. Uh, we already know that. And uh, all of you within the sound of my voice, you are in for many more weeks of me talking about how I love Vic. This scene in particular felt a little odd. And I'm trying to decide how I feel about it. Because I, I like Vic's advice a lot. Like, like you needed him there, but why did you need him there? And here's the thing. It comes back to Bashir and Quark. It is totally legitimate that Bashir and Quark would still think that Dax is awesome and they're entitled to have a, a, a long lost bit of love or infatuation with her. I totally get that. They do need to get over it, though. And even if faking getting over it is the answer, they need to fake it to not be mm -hmm. so pathetic. Look, guys, celebrate your friends, enjoy their joy, and don't be a pathetic, selfish creep. 
listen to Vic. I, I think I think Vic could have like his advice was great. I think he could have been a little more pointed as well because it just feels odd that there's. Still I think the scene with it. Vic is one of those things when you reach a season finale where you want to see like all of the guest stars reappear. I mean, we had everyone here, like you said in mm-hmm. trivia, we had pretty much all of the recurring cast of characters, you know, the the usual suspects, now Vic being one of them. But I agree with you. I think that as much as I love that scene, it's a long scene. I mean, he sang a long song. I didn't time that scene particularly, but it was a long scene with long exposition. And in an episode like this, in a season finale, you want to be able to to celebrate the highlights of what you're trying to tell. We know Mm -hmm. that. And it's I don't want to say highlight being, you know, a positive thing. The highlight of this episode is the death of Jadzia. That is like the key yeah. focal moment of this episode. I'll, I'll talk about that later because I don't want to steal my ending notes. But mm-hmm. was it was it just me? Was it you, John? Were, were people out there feeling the same thing? I think you've alluded to this several times in our observations. But did this episode just just whip through so much plot development that it that it almost yeah. seemed unfair? to all the threads that were being brought up here. Well, it's a fine balancing act because it's all the plot threads and it's the important character arc pieces that that we're trying to wrap up or trying to uh, at least maintain or give them a bit more momentum. And this is just one of those bits of character momentum that I'm kind of done with because it makes Bashir and Quark seem pathetic. I mean, and maybe I can be more forgiving of Quark because... Quark's a weirdo, but, but you know, Bashir has grown so much over the last couple of seasons uh, mm-hmm. emotionally. And it, it, again, like, yes, fine if you want to carry this torch a little bit. Stop moping around about it. Stop, uh, stop throwing yourself into this situation. And when, when the hologram can tell that that's what's up with you, just you need to refocus yourself because it's just making you look bad. And then you're squandering, as we see here, you're squandering that time that you do have with Jed C. I mean, I guess the reason why I ask this is because in the last three or four episodes, you know, we've been very, fairly critical about them because they haven't been the greatest episodes in the world. And now you have this episode, the season finale, which just feels so ramrod packed with detail that you're not really giving yeah. the the most important elements their due. The this invasion of Cardassia, yeah. you know, finally Cisco, you know, resolving his, you know, his machinations in in the pale moonlight to bring the Romulans into their presence, not just into the war, but mm-hmm. actually into their ward room to talk about the next invasion, yeah. you know, plan. And then obviously what happened with Goldicott and Jadzia. There's just so much there that I'm surprised that they didn't see this as the possible two-parter with all of say, the weaker episodes that came before this, especially Prophet and Lace. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it, since this is an episode that jumps around a bit, I mean, I, I just wanted to focus on that for a minute. And then I feel like we really have to talk about the prophets here, and we have to talk about the, the supernatural slash not supernatural because they're wormhole aliens, that whole uh, thread that's happening here. So two things. Uh, I'm frustrated. I have been frustrated with the prophets many times before. And now here I am again frustrated with the prophets. And we'll get to the Dukat part of this in a moment. But first, focusing on their relationship with the emissary 
vis-a-vis, well, their relationship with the Bajorans vis-a-vis their relationship with the emissary, uh, Cisco. Look, either they care or they don't care about what's going on. Either they have relevant details or they don't. If they could possibly use their words to clue in Cisco that either what, what's important here, what's most important to him, what's most important to them, that Dax will die, uh, then that might have made for an interesting series of decisions that we get to see play out in this episode. She could stay or she could go, and either way, it might have been the wrong decision. And as for the wormhole aliens themselves, could they not articulate that the wormhole potentially would disappear because of decisions that were being made or, or um, untied up threads like the Paw Wraith being on the loose or being able to escape again? These are, if the wormhole aliens care about their relationship with the Bajorans, their existence within the wormhole or the wormhole's access to the Bajorans or anything, it's getting a little frustrating that it is just so obfuscated all the time that it stops to me like it stops having meaning for the characters it's just like well they said another vague thing i guess we'll just do what we think is best anyway at the highest level that's yeah yeah yeah, vague booking. That that yeah, the wormhole aliens are masters of yeah, well, that, booking. that's their like it. when they have those right. premonition yeah. states with Cisco, it's basically like a vague book post. You're like, "What what do you mean? Yeah. Am, am I supposed to go there? Am I supposed to order pizza? <laughs> am I supposed to take a road trip? What do you mean stay there?" <laughs> like that's that's the interesting thing about interpretation of kind of like these these prophecies, but yeah. even more so. Yeah. That they're literally saying they're saying to him like, well, well, something you do could turn it's, out wrong. It's for, it's fortune okay. cookies. Yeah, it's fortune cookies. <laughs> See you, man. Right? You know, it's whatever. You, <laughs> yes, it's whatever it emotional is. state that you're in right now. You read that fortune cookie, yeah. and then you're like, you know, William Shatner in that Twilight Zone episode, and you're bar- basically like nailed to your, you know, to your diner bench, hitting that button. You know, seeing that little oh, like, little demon God, tick I out like, your fortune, and you you can't move because of analysis yes. paralysis, right? But this whole thing right, is about right. like whose God is is stronger whose god is better right because you have your prophets you know they're bajoran's gods you have the pa wraiths who are a a new you know religious entity and obviously the uh, the ally of of uh of the cot but then you have what i love you have the founders who are also considered gods right so i was having this conversation not too long ago and i'm so it was just struck me funny that this got brought up in this episode this this paradigm Uh uh-huh this this is the the adage of uh, like your trolley cart problem, or you know when when kids are on a bus and yeah. uh, they're in an accident and they get sent to the hospital. You have varying sets of parents going into the the you know the the hospital uh, you know the hospital altar or, or the prayer room, and they're all praying for their childrens to be mm-hmm. saved to you know to uh, to be saved from this accident. They're all from different religious backgrounds. They're all from different faiths. And if one child survives and the others don't, what does that say? Right? Yeah. 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 That Okay. Well, you, you nailed uh, really just my favorite moment. And it's such a tiny moment. You believe that the founders are gods, don't you? That's different. In what way? The founders are gods. That, to me, slow clap. This That tiny little exchange and dialogue between Damar and Weyun is buried in all of this high-stakes, right. high-action set pieces, and it is just 
brilliant. And I'm so glad that we are here because it is worth stopping and pointing that out and letting that settle for a while. It is so, uh, it, that moment says it all. If you're paying attention, if you're not, if you don't get it, if you don't understand what they're trying to say with that, go back and watch it again because you nailed it in a very real world scenario, which is that you can have six different people praying to six different gods. How are you going to tell which one is right. the one? It's who's usually the right. one who actually does something yeah. for the person who's praying to them. So when you think about it, the until the next until time. the next time until exactly. the next time they exactly. don't. So you yeah. have this. You yeah. know, this revolving door of deities or of these supernatural powers that whoever ends up on top has to be right. In this case, you know, the prophets are doing one thing. They're being esoteric and they're being ambivalent. And they're being, you know, uh, they're, they're vague booking all over the place. Then you have the paw wraiths who are just, mm-hmm. they're out for like, you know, they're, they're chaotic and they just do chaotic things for chaotic reasons. Yeah. Oh, oh right. we're, we're going to get to that too. But yeah. then you actually have the founders <laughs> right. who are actually doing something. They actually have a plan. They're exacting their mm-hmm. plan. They've created strategies. They've actually t- they they've done all of this in the name of this dominion. And the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar they serve actual god like figures who they believe are gods who are actually getting things done. Right? Gods are not. They're actually yeah. doing something tangible, something real, something with a purpose and a goal. You know. They can actually give right. their followers something to actually ascertain, to believe in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I did. Oh. But, and then only yeah. Jeffrey Coons can <laughs> turn with that slow turn sake. They are gods. <laughs> oh, I love God. that. It's, it's just, it's genius. See, that that's the brilliant part of when that writing is good, as it is here in four lines, you can say it all. And that that little exchange did. All right, let's talk about those paw rays because here's the other thing where I'm getting frustrated with the quasi-supernatural elements of the show, and that is about Dukat and the choices that are made with Dukat here. I I really love the journey that he has been on. I don't love Dukat. He's the bad guy, yes. But I love how complex the journey is that the writers have created for this character. They, they have built him up. They have allowed him to slip completely into madness. He has his own drive beyond just the strategy of war, which makes things dramatically great. Because if this were just moving pieces around on the chessboard, if it were just strategy after strategy, I, we would lose interest. But now you have character-driven reasons to be there. So what they've done with Dukat is great mm-hmm. up until a point. And I am honestly far less interested in him absorbing the powers of a Parath. All this time, all this time, after decades of Cardassian occupation on Bajor, it took this one guy to figure out that the wormhole is a gateway to the Bajoran gods. And he also managed to find the Parath that will inhabit him and do his bidding instead of just looking for other prophets to fight or whatever it was that they were up to in the reckoning. I don't know that I needed this with Dukat. I I was already sold on Dukat. I was already sold on what he was doing and what his motivations were and how determined that he was. And I feel like there were ways to plot him around what needed to happen in the story. So this, just introducing that, it seems like a long way out of the way for him, because I'm interested in him, not in what this other entity will do. He's already the bad guy. He's already slipped into madness. He's already dangerous and unhinged. Did this plot detail make that 
better somehow, more ominous somehow. I mean, well, it was what a did little it do disconnected for, for me because all of a sudden, you know, he's an expert mm-hmm. in Bajoran archaeology and and history and religious <laughs> artifacts. The last time we saw him right. uh, was. Uh, I can't even remember the name of that episode because it has like five billion words in that episode's name. Like to the, you know, remember when he was basically it was the one where he was trolling Kira about her. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's the last time yeah. we saw him, and the only thing that he did in that episode was to basically to have Kira, you know, uh, time travel and and save her mom and whatever. You know, wrongs Thank darker you. than death. Thank night. you. You're welcome. Um, but <laughs> that was that episode, and that's the last time we saw of him, and he yeah. didn't say anything about studying Bajoran architecture or trying to find ways to defeat Cisco by using uh, their his gods against them. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's just poof. Yeah. I know where to find this thing. I know what it does. I know what it's going to do to me. And I'm going to take care of the prophets and the, and the wormhole. And remember, the last two times we've seen anybody possessed by paw race, those people were not in control yeah. of their actions at all. We saw Jake. And we saw Keiko. Now, Kira lucked out and got possessed by one of the good guys. But what did it do to her? Are she had no control over what she was on. doing. Well, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're not paw rates. <laughs> There's something else. You know, they're, uh, yeah. they're wormholians in a, uh, in a non-corporeal state. Uh, but then, you know, when she doesn't want to talk to anybody, uh, the wind machine turns off and she's standing like a statue in the middle of the promenade. So it's a little uh, – the very idea that uh, Ducat would just assume that he could absorb this and accomplish whatever it was that he needed to do and whatever the Pa Wraith needed to do, it just felt like a forced, well, deus ex machina. No machine here, but a statue to smash and uh, red energy to go up his nose so it could then shoot out of his finger. Yeah, and I think that that's just... I, I felt that they wrote that particular shoehorn into the episode to be able to do just that. It wasn't, in, in my opinion, it wasn't earned... The ask was too great, and I think that they did it just for a vehicle so that he could be the bad guy that did the bad thing to Dax because we needed something to happen to her to write her off the show. It's it's a little too transparent, and the writers are better than that, and none of that is earned. So especially with Ducat because that character has been so well-developed, and all of a sudden, fire and evil and because. Hey, we're we're back to wizard battle. (laughs) My explanation for the out-of-place uniforms, the Dominion War is taking its toll on everything, even dry cleaning. Well, now, I don't know if you know this, but not only are we at the end of this episode, but we are at the end of Season 6 what? of Deep Space Nine. It, it, yeah. It's like we just started the season. I can't believe it. I read that, and I literally shed tears. Ooh. Tears of the prophets. <laughs> there were little gems that fell out of my eyes. Te- tears of the mission log hosts <laughs> that we've reached the end of yet another season. But we are at the end of the episode, and at the end of the episode, we discuss our thoughts about if this episode stands the test of time, does it hold up, and then we talk about morals, meanings, and messages. So, my child, John... <laughs> Because Kaiwen has to make an appearance somehow in this episode. Hello. At least Kai in our podcast. Oh. Let's, let's talk about 
does this episode stand the test of time? How did you feel about it? Okay, so now this is the fun of doing the show, is that because we don't read each other's notes, like we might have an inkling of the topic we're getting into, but we don't really know where the conversation is going to go. And then we did that last segment, and when we wrapped it up, when we about it, I, I just kind of thought to myself, like, ooh, wow, we're, we're just like bulldozing right, we're getting worked up, we're just bulldozing right into that last segment because that's where the conversation went. And I'm glad it went there because it's the perfect lead-in to my feelings on this episode. And I'm going to take what I, look, it may not be a surprise to you now because we did not talk about this at all before recording, but it might be a surprise to some people in the audience. I'm going to take what might be the unpopular opinion on this episode because I feel like I'm supposed to love this episode. I feel like that's sort of the conventional wisdom, and that's what people expect. It's a season ender. It's got high drama. It has the death of a beloved character. There are personal stakes to what's going on, and there is a superbly well-done battle scene with some truly great special effects. And uh, Norman, as you pointed out, we, we get that tear-jerking shot that just no matter what, for a Star Trek fan, it will always stick. The photon torpedo tube with the Federation flag. That just has meaning. Even though it's a fictional universe, even though it's fictional characters, that has meaning and it makes us feel the feels. So why do I feel frustrated by this episode? It's a situation where I like the story, I generally like the dramatic beats, but I do not like how we got there for any of it. It's a hodgepodge of those dramatic beats, but thrown together in a blender that is set on full speed. Where DS9 sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it wrong, they'll take their time with character and story growth, and then they'll take detours and forget they have to wrap things up. There's a mad rush to the end, which means that so many of the moments here that really felt like they could have been earned are instead just telegraphed right to the audience. Dukat's Paw Wraith just happens to be the one that, that does what he wants. And, and we're also going to keep hitting this thing about Dax wanting a baby in every scene with her, sort of like the cop who's one day away from retirement. And yeah, I, I'm getting too old for this, John. Right, I'm getting right. too old for this. And, and, yeah. and we're going to get the dramatic goodbye scene, even though it's been how long since Dukat blew a hole in her? It's all very frustrating. Uh, my favorite scene in the whole thing is Cisco walking away at the end. It felt like the most real, the most emotionally honest. It was so relatable. And you can't have anything but respect for him and for that moment. So does it hold up? Well, it, it, that, that's a dicey question for me on this episode because from a plot point of view, yes, it has to hold up because it has to serve as a bridge from one part of the overall story to the next part. All these threads that are getting sewn up here in this one. As far as production value goes, without question, it's so well produced. But as far as a script, as far as telling a story with earned moments, I can't say that it does. What about you? Mm. Well, yeah, I, I kind of had a, a, a really hard time with this episode because what it did served the purpose of trying to tie up a lot of narratives for this season. Why it's so difficult 
because there are so many threads mm-hmm. going on here. Right. I mean, let's let's kind of I, I tried to count them out as many as I could. But you have Cisco and the prophets. You have the Cardassian invasion. You have Dax and Worf wanting to become parents. You have Kira and Odo's relationship issues. You have Quark and Julian trying to move on from Jadzia. You have Wayun and Damar. You have Dukat turning into a paw wraith. I mean, look at that. This is 50 minutes. Right. And you're dealing with any one of these threads. Two of them could have been an A plot and a B plot that would have made a fantastic episode. But you have all of that in here. And as much as I love James Darren, he took up a pretty decent chunk of screen time that could have been used for exposition. I was shocked they did the full song. I was shocked. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And as much as I love watching him sing and... The scene does make sense. It was a lot of scene for not as much sense that needs to be made Mm -hmm. because it's pretty obvious that those two really need to just move on, buck up, buck up and move on. But there's just so, there are so many ingredients in this gumbo. Since we ended at Cisco's, I'm going to use gumbo. I like that. But in any dish, you know, you have to have balance. You have to have a way to have at least one or two of the really important spices stand out or have that whole meal work in concert with each other. And in many ways, you just felt like you had narrative whiplash in this episode because it was this scene, then that scene, then this scene, then that scene, then this story, then that story. It never had any room to breathe. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, my biggest issue with this episode, it never gave Jadzia's death the proper time it needed to breathe. Right, right. That's the biggest sin of this episode. This is a character that we have fallen in love with for six seasons. Mm -hmm. And her death was rushed. It felt unearned. It didn't have a chance to settle. And we're all fans of different fandoms. And we all have watched characters get killed at the most Mm -hmm. ridiculous parts in the narrative that take us off guard. But the one thing that many of those, especially the Joss Whedon ones... The, the point that that happens, they give you a chance to mourn for the character because we have invested that much time into this character and we want to mourn with the characters that she influenced. We want, her to, we want to mourn with Cisco, with Kira, with Worf, with all of them. Yeah. And I'll bet anyone right now another drink at STLV <laughs> if you can tell me if any one of those characters actually shed a tear. At the end of the episode, because yeah. none of them did. Yeah. I watched it many times. They were sad. Yeah. They were pouty. They were frowning. But you would think that one, Julian or Quark would have been in just devastated. Thank you. Yeah, because why had that scene earlier where they, they think they are in love with her? You know? Yeah. Right. yeah. I, mean, I mean, if Quark had said, nope, bar's closed. Yeah. That would have spoken volumes. Yeah. Right? So I wanted real emotional weight yeah. at that moment in the aftermath. And I didn't get it. And we deserved that. She deserved that. Yeah. And it's because of that, because we didn't connect with how deep that loss should have been. We never got our cathartic moment. So in the end, it was just that it was an unearned, uncathartic, unemotional moment. And well, TLDR here, just why didn't they write a proper funeral scene for her? For a character that they've invested all this time in for six years. Answer me yeah, that. Perfect. Okay. So with all that said, and, and very interesting to me that we arrived at such a similar place on this episode. Because, um, again, I, I feel like 
the ideas here aren't bad. The ideas of where they wanted to wind up with these characters are not bad. They just crammed it all into a single episode and those moments never gelled. So uh, at the end of the day, did you learn anything? Are there messages to be mined here? I mean, you know me, I really try. Oh, yeah. I mean, in some of those episodes, yeah. I, you know, and even in Profit and Lace, I found something. <laughs> but honestly, like the more I watch this, and I've watched this several mm-hmm. times, there are just stories that are just so full of plot that there, there are no real opportunities to weave a message in there or a moral tale because that's just how jam-packed of information, like exposition and information that was this episode. So I didn't really find an opportunity to find something that rose to the surface. Now, I guess if there is a message that I could glean off of this episode, it's live for the moment because you don't know when Dukat's going to just materialize of nowhere and kill you. With his red eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because that could happen. Yeah. You know, that's that's but I know I'm saying that glibly, yeah. but that's the kind of thing where anyone can be just blinked out of existence from an accident to a sickness to, you know, something tragic. Yeah. Right. That's what happened to Jadzia. And I guess the allegory here is that, you know, she was basically the victim of random violence. Mm-hmm. You know, as corny as it happened, the way it was written into this episode, that's pretty much what happened. She was gunned down mercilessly without without uh, any real. Um, objective in mind with the cot. Yeah. He even said, like, I didn't mean to hurt you. You're just in my way. Mm-hmm. If you weren't here, I wouldn't have touched you. So, yeah, I mean, she got randomly gunned down with random violence. And I guess with what Vic was trying to say, it's like, you guys got to move on because there are too many opportunities to be happy for you just to hang your hats on one person. Yeah. But again, that's really hard to mine in this episode that's packed with so much information. So what about you, John? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I, I'm similar to you. This episode is all about plot, and it is plot-heavy, which is fine. We get those from time to time. It's all about getting us from the end of this season and into the setup for the next. Whatever. If we are to determine something to take away, yeah, I, I like Vic's advice, those guys should not have been so boneheaded as to need that advice <laughs> this many years down the road. They they shouldn't have to hear it. But Vic, yes, you, you're the wise old sage of DS9. My, how we have needed you all this time. There's an interesting idea here that they didn't really explore, which is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's a bit on the nose, but I did like how that strategy session between the Federation, Klingon, and Romulans unfolded. We knew that they had to get to a point of cooperation against the bigger threat, and we knew that they would all prove themselves. My question is going forward. Will this be a turning point for a longer period of cooperation? Will there be something else positive to come out of this that they all actually learn? Or was it just a moment of plot contrivance? I guess we'll see because we have more episodes to go. To me, the most poignant thing here, again, is is just the end. It is this emotional and uh, a career journey that Cisco has been on. He has taken on a lot for himself. He has not understood exactly where his obligations have been. Sometimes you have to walk away. And I don't think there's any shame or dishonor in that. He had to go get his head right, especially after the tragedies that he's been around. Yeah, Jadzia died, but 
we also have the hundreds and thousands of other people who, well, possibly just on this one mission and in the war at large, have also lost their lives. He's the guy who lied to get the Romulans into the war because he was tired of seeing the, uh, the, the death rate reports coming in. So I get it. He needs to walk away. And that, to me, was a very moving thing just to see him and see the support of other people around him say, you need to not be here. Go go back home. Go wash clams because your dad's going to make something delicious with them. That's all right. And uh, if we're going to leave it there with season six, that's all right by me. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Image in the Sand. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. How tragic is it that we will never again hear Warp say gong gong gong, and will someone get you caught some visine? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.